Welcome to episode 59 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's May 2nd. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about and reflect on COVID, the state of disaster and disease history, and academic engagement with the public through online media. And we could think of no one better to talk about these topics than Scott Gabriel Knowles, who is professor at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Scott is the author of The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America from the University of Pennsylvania Press, and a huge number of other articles and edited volumes. Now, not only has Scott worked on disasters, risk, and climate change, among other topics, but he's also the host of The Daily Show since March of 2020 called COVID Calls. Right. Scott has been hosting these calls since almost the beginning of the U.S.-based lockdown on a daily basis. And Merle, you and I do this once a week, and to be honest, it can overwhelm us. So doing a show daily, and particularly all the logistics involved, is really something amazing. And Scott has been going for some 269 episodes now, which is hugely impressive by itself, but even more so considering the range of episodes he's done. So anything from historical disasters, face masks, misinformation, mental health, obituaries, teletherapy, poetry, maternity care, and so many more. So hi, Scott. Hi, Lee. Hi, Merle. Thanks for coming on the show. And like our episode a few weeks back with Sven Eric, who spoke to us about his work with the media and the 1918 influenza pandemic, we are obviously interested in ways in which we could use historical and social scientific research to plan for COVID and future disasters. In this context, we thought bringing Scott on might be a good way to reflect upon some of the broader themes that came up in both our podcasts, and perhaps also think about how to engage with the public during an event, and not only after the event, as most of us historians are more used to do. So this reflective process also fits with your favorite scale, Merle, and I'm thinking about the meta scale here. Yeah, thanks, Lee. I thought meta was your favorite scale, actually, but I guess now it's mine too. But that was a good way to put it. We and Skyda would imagine do these episodes weekly or daily without perhaps having the time or all the time to step back and consider what it is we're doing. I mean, on a basic level, we're obviously doing more public facing work when it comes to the academic sphere. And at least I can say for us that we also learn an absolute ton from all our guests. But I think having Scott on is a good way to reflect upon all of these topics and all of these issues for all of you listening, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and what it is we're trying to do with this work. I think every once in a while, it's extremely useful to take stock of where we are. But before we chat with Scott, how was your second week of classes back in person? Was it better than your first, Lee? So I'm teaching one class in person, and it was definitely better than the previous class. And I think what made the difference was to really focus on what's going on in the class and not on the Zoom that was open at the same time. So the Zoom was open. There was some engagement there, but the vast majority of engagement was with people who were in the class with me. So so that was definitely helpful. Other than that, there's been a major disaster in Israel and a religious festival that ended up in a stampede and 45 deaths. Now, this is obviously a tragedy, but it's also interesting to note that this actually did happen. So there were some, let's say, 100,000 people congregating in a very small space, and this is in the context of COVID. And one of the issues is that there was quite a lot of political pressure to hold this event despite COVID. And of course, the original fear concerned COVID, but 
the event it did end up in disaster regardless. Was this a one-off event or is this something that similar things are now happening all the time in Israel? So this was a an annual event, the largest religious gathering in Israel on an annual level. And there are other events as well. I mean, obviously smaller, but broadly speaking, people do feel safe to congregate outside and inside as well now. And that being said, Merle, what's, what's going on with you? I kind of remember you were planning to head towards Princeton for a visit. How, how did that go? Yeah, that was the big exciting event, I guess, of the last week or so, uh, which is we visited friends in Princeton, where you and I, Lee, went to grad school. And it was actually the most interaction I had with people and things I've done since before COVID. So I went into multiple stores just to buy pastries, for example, or to buy ice cream with the kids. Plus, I even had drinks with a couple of colleagues outside a restaurant, you know, with tables spaced out. So it was the first time I've done any type of sitting down in a restaurant since COVID began. And we also had dinners outside of people's houses, a few different people. How did it feel? I mean, just like socializing after so long with no, no real social contact. I mean, it was a bit strange. The outside stuff, again, because it's nicer, didn't feel that weird. Although, you know, it's strange to see people again that you haven't seen in a while. But the weirdest thing, I think, from that perspective was all the adults we were with have been fully vaccinated, right? So they've had their two shots, but none of the kids obviously have. So there were a whole bunch of interactions in which none of the adults were masked outside, but all the kids were right? Because a lot of these schools have very strict rules on, you know, you can't socialize with kids outside of the school so that, you know, you don't bring COVID into the school. And so you have kids who are masked and parents who are not, which is clearly going to be a normal thing moving forward. Sounds like it's very difficult to convince kids to wear masks when all the adults around them are not wearing any masks. But no, actually, I mean, all the kids were quite good. I mean, they're used to most of them at school. Now they wear them all the time when they play with kids. So in fact, actually, the kids were very, very good about wearing masks better than the adults are, as I've talked about a few times on this podcast. But that's kind of where I think we'll be until they change vaccination uh, schedules for kids as well. I should say before we turn to kids, when I was on Scott's podcast, had my personal viral moment of this pandemic where my daughter came into the room during the middle of a taping with Scott and my wife grabbed her and <laughs> pulled her out of the room extremely quickly. And I have definitely bookmarked that clip, Scott, and sent it around to a number of friends. And all of my friends and my wife's friends are extremely impressed with my wife's skills to pull my daughter out. So I just wanted to mention that. But Scott, you uh, moved to South Korea in the last few months from what I understand. And American news media has portrayed Korea's having its act together, for lack of a better term. But what's it like now? The situation here, it was really, when we arrived, it was just the complete inverse of what we had gotten used to in the United States. I, I mean, at every level. I mean, even arriving at the airport and going through, I think we must have had maybe six or seven different stops and stations that we had to check in with before we could even clear the airport and get our bags. And these were making sure that we had the 
appropriate app on our phone and that all of our paperwork that we had done ahead of time with tests that indicated we were COVID-free 72 hours before we even got on the flight. I mean, that's just even before we got in the country. Once we arrived here, I'm in uh, Dijon with my family because that's where Kaist is located. And Dijon is a city of 1.5 million people. And I get text messages whenever cases are confirmed. I mean, the level of contact tracing here is so sophisticated. On the other hand, we haven't been vaccinated yet. And the vaccination process has started, but they've emphasized, of course, you know, uh, essential workers, caregivers, people in the healthcare sector. That's normal. Um, we don't actually know when we will be vaccinated. The mass vaccination centers are getting ramped up to go, but it'd probably be late summer or early fall before we'll be vaccinated. Of course, that's the benefit of having done infection control effectively. So why do you get these messages about people being infected somewhere? Are, are you supposed to kind of like trace where your whereabouts back and see if they coincide with those individuals or something? Or, and what, what, what's the point in that? And maybe another broader question would be how, how is life on a daily basis? Are restaurants open? Can you go and, I don't know, see a movie or whatever? I think in terms of the communication, part of it is just a sort of continual flow of communication that continues to keep trust, I think, between citizens and public health officials. So you get messages uh, that tell you what's happening at, a, at the level of, you know, the sort of provincial level. And then at KAIST on my campus, we get messages, and those are much more specific. So if cases break out, they do actually tell you if you've been in the proximity of somebody who was later confirmed as having COVID. On this, of course, mask wearing is universal, but everybody is out. We were out today at a, at a tremendous park. We had a fortress site, it was a 2,000-year-old site. It was packed. People keep their distance as best they can, but everybody's wearing a mask. People are eating in restaurants, but only with appropriate distance. And whenever the caseload reaches the level that the health officials feel is appropriate, then they pull back on those possibilities. Right now, I think people are allowed to congregate in groups of five. So, you know, dining is, is outdoors in most cases. Uh, I don't know about movies, but, um, you know, I've been teaching and we were able to meet. Uh, I was in a room with my students, everybody wearing masks, and we had one student on Zoom. So we were in person and also remote simultaneously. And then we had to come out of the classroom after week five or six. We haven't met in person again since then. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the larger story here is that they've got it really fine-tuned. And so when you know those numbers reach a level that they don't think is safe, they send you the messaging and they direct you on how to act. Yeah, it's actually something that I've pointed out in a number of times, which is there's clearly a inverse relationship to an extent between how well places reacted in you know northern rich industrialized countries to vaccines versus you know non-pharmaceutical intervention, right? The better you were at the non-pharmaceutical stuff, the less need in some ways you have of immediate vaccines as many people as possible, you know, which to an extent explains the United Kingdom and the United States versus, say, Korea. Yeah, what's interesting here in Korea, it, from my perspective too, this is not a country that's averse to celebrating technology. I mean, you know, the, the worship almost of the techno fix of the vaccine in the United States, I guess one of the few things that both parties could agree on last year is that that was going to be the way out. And South Korea is as technologically sophisticated as anywhere I've ever been, certainly 
anywhere I've lived. And yet the discourse around the vaccine has been, you know, people would like to have it, certainly. I think it's it's slowing down. It will slow down the pace of international travel, for example. Still a quarantine in effect, but people who arrive here from other places have to lock in for two weeks. We had to do that. So they're not averse to technology, but it's just that they made that investment on the front end with the apps and with the contact tracing. It's incredibly technologically sophisticated whole assemblage of things that have to come together. But at the root of it is a sort of shared project of health. And I, you know, in the United States, uh, that just wasn't possible. <laughs> yeah, I like to say about the vaccines in the United States that they run exactly how you would expect everything in the United States to run, which is if you're good at figuring out loopholes and how to use online websites, you could get vaccinated as soon as you wanted to. But if you didn't have that skill set and didn't have that money and wealth, it was absolutely and still is inaccessible for many, many people. I've talked to so many people on COVID calls who've told their stories about getting vaccinated. And actually, I'd like to do an episode in the future where that's just that with like a roll call of people just talking about how they got it. And the thing that has struck me is the wild variability in how people got the information. I mean, occasionally somebody's like, yes, I received some sort of like boring communication. It told me I could go at this place in time. But in most cases, like I got a call from my brother-in-law and he said they had some at the CVS or people haunting drugstores at closing time because there were some extra doses, you know, and then there's all these, this apps and of course, Twitter feeds that have made a sort of um, social media presence out of knowing where the doses are available. My own family, they, they were on the phone calling all around. And of course, that's also a reflection of the American healthcare system anyway, right? You need to see a doctor. You got to call all around to find out who will see you. So I guess it's continuity in some ways. Yeah. And that's actually a pretty good segue to the beginning of the interview, which, I mean, you spoke about this future episode you might want to make, but maybe we could begin by you telling our listeners what exactly COVID calls is. Sure. Well, COVID calls is a daily live podcast that I've been doing since March 16th of 2020. So every day for a long time, I did them at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Now I do most of them at 5.30. Uh, that's to accommodate my radical time zone shift of where I am now, 13 hours ahead of where I used to be. So they're early morning for me now. And the formula for them has stayed pretty much the same throughout, which is that I have a, a guest or a couple of guests, sometimes a, a group, four or five, usually one or two people. And I read some daily statistics about case rates around the world. I read an obituary and then we go into conversation for an hour. And the idea is to give people plenty of time to talk in depth about their own research or their own activism, uh, their own artistic projects, whatever they may be related uh, to the pandemic. And so those, then they're streamed live on a number of different platforms. And then it gets uh, edited lightly and turned into an audio podcast and, and then transcripts are available. And that has been the formula we've gone with. I'll have episode number 270 starting on Monday. Could I ask you briefly, maybe to cast your mind back to how you decided to do this? I think, you know, Lee and I have almost forgotten in the myths of time how we came up with our own podcast, but I'm curious how you decided to do yours. And especially, I guess, also decided to do it daily, for example. 
that part is clear. The, the beginning part is clearer than some of the middle parts, I think, certainly over the summer when I was really had decided to keep doing them. At the beginning, I mean, even just the title really tells you. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about a flashy title. It was really just calls I was making about COVID. And that's often how I work as a historian. I'm a historian who studies disasters. And I, my own methodology, I love being in the archives, but a lot of times I will make calls around to journalists, working scientists, people I find interesting who have different vantage points on a disaster. I do those interviews. I keep them because maybe I refer back to them in some writing I might do. But a lot of times those are markers for me to, to go back, kind of reverse engineer the historical narrative a little bit. So talking to people who are up on the present is a way to understand the past. Historians often talk about the opposite of that process. So that's that's the calls. And I decided if I was going to make those calls, we were all locked down anyway. Maybe I should do a few of them as sort of live webinars. That was my thought at the beginning. So I got Zoom. I had just gotten Zoom. I was like trying to figure out how to use it. So let's make a live webinar out of this, the COVID calls. And so that's how it started. And the first two weeks of them were live with people attending and people feeding in questions as the conversation went. So it functioned almost more like a classroom. Uh, it was not being broadcast in any way at that time. Um, that was great, but I thought maybe the conversations were so rich. I mean, what people were bringing to the conversation to me was so impressive. I mean, I would be talking to historians or sociologists, but also to public health researchers. And I thought, let's try to broadcast a little bit. So that's when I brought it up onto YouTube and eventually onto Periscope and anywhere else that StreamYard will send it. And so that's after week two, that's really kind of what I've been going with. So it's this, the audience is anybody who's out there listening or watching and they can still feed questions in, but it's a lot less like a conference and more like a broadcast now. I think the other thing I would say is that this was already on my mind because during the fall of 2017, you may remember there were the three hurricanes that came in rapid succession that fall, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. And my family, my parents had just moved to Port Aransas, Texas, actually, that spring. And their house was partially destroyed by Hurricane Harvey. And I went down there that fall and met my colleague, Kim Fortune, actually, down there. She's an anthropologist, and we work a lot of projects together. And we went around and toured sites and did interviews and and then also I was there helping my parents. And, and I remember thinking at that time that I, I wished I had kept a sort of daily audio log or even done a podcast then to capture particularly those three months in time, because so much was happening. And you had these three disasters that were compounding. And because they were hitting across the Gulf, the Caribbean, Texas, and Florida, the scope of it was really immense. And so it brought all of these compound issues to bear around public health, around race, inequality, deferred maintenance of infrastructure, slow disaster, climate change, various things. But I just, I didn't do it. And I, and I think that was lodged in my mind that the next time a disaster of some significant scale and scope came up, that maybe I would try to do something like that. And so I think that that's really where COVID calls came from. So that's also where the decision to have daily episodes came from? And have you reconsidered it since? Really, that is where it came from. But also the other thing is that in any disaster, there's uh, 
you know, the journalists are going to be filing stories. If it's a disaster of short duration, they're going to file a lot of stories in a short period of time. It became pretty clear before even the pandemic reached the United States that this was going to be a story of many different parts and it was going to be a global story. There were going to be a lot of journalists working the story. And as you both know, I mean, a lot of the kind of stuff we do or a lot of disaster research, social science disaster research can be a little esoteric. It's not always so clear to journalists why they need to talk to people like us or why they might even need to talk to people who study housing or people who st- or even people who study race. So my thought was because there are going to be so many stories filed about the pandemic, there could be some kind of a podcast that could try to create a middle space where journalists and social science researchers could find each other. And that was the kind of the idea of the, and then the news was changing so much every single day that it seemed like there was plenty of material to talk about every day. And that's actually how I started. And the first guests I had were people who I thought were just doing really amazing social science research, whom journalists should find in the midst of those sort of early days of the pandemic. And maybe a couple, three months into it, about the time I thought I would stop, I initially thought I would stop with episode um, 100. And that was in the summer of 2020. And the pandemic had become something different by that point. George Floyd had been murdered by that point. The infection rates had come down in some places in urban areas, but in rural areas, they were starting to spike because of the governors and states like Nebraska and Florida and Texas opening everything up. And every time I thought, well, I could slow the pace of this thing, or maybe it's time to stop doing COVID calls, the pandemic becomes something else again. And I'm in that phase right now. There was this vaccination phase that we've moved into with this variability, the experiences we were discussing earlier between the United States and South Korea, or what's happening in India right now. It's become a different pandemic yet again. So that's the reason I've kept going daily. So you're still considering this a global issue and don't really have any end point in sight at the moment? I've set endpoints multiple different times. I imagine public health officials have set, set endpoints all the time for this, um, and I've gotten burned every time. I have to say my family is incredibly supportive of this. I mean, this is a team effort, uh, particularly last year doing them at home while we were all in lockdown. It gave us sort of a pace to the day. You know, everybody, my experience was like so many people, you know, everybody get up in the morning and then like we all retreat to our separate quarters to do our work, our school, whatever it is we were doing. And COVID calls came at the end of the day. And then when it was over, we would all eat dinner together and talk about the episode. So that's been, that was very sustaining to have that as a, as a time together as family. And I realized COVID calls was helping me cope with all of this too. So that's another reason that I've kept going with it and kept going with this pace. And I'm not putting any, any endpoint. The other day I put an arbitrary endpoint to say it will be the end of this year, 2021. And I was talking with a friend. He said, no, man, this is a four-year thing. And But he's right. I mean, to a point, if you consider you really want to trace long COVID, the economic impacts, health changes to health system daily for four years, I don't know about that. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about bringing your family in, because that's something a number of people have remarked to me, at least, I don't know about you, Lee, is these are snapshots of me with my young kids and what, you know, they're not going to remember COVID necessarily because they're too young, but in some ways they can get 
a sense of what life was like for them through their very critical father's eyes, in a sense of what they've done. And I have a couple of friends as well who tell me, well, I don't actually listen to the substance sometimes of your podcast, but I listen to the opening little bit so I can catch up on your life because I don't talk to you every day, which I find very interesting and very endearing in some ways. But maybe, you know, you hinted that there were different moments and different phases. I can remember at least when we've done this, that there are different phases for us and kind of our interests, but are there broad conclusions you've kind of reached in these different phases about the pandemic itself? I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, I only gave a first presentation about COVID calls two weeks ago, and it was like the first time that I'd ever actually tried to think synthetically about what the calls revealed. I mean, I have my own ideas about the pandemic or generally, but sort of thinking about the pandemic through the COVID calls and through what the experts, people I've interviewed have brought to the discussion. I mean, the first thing maybe seems kind of obvious, but it's probably worth repeating is that this is a global phenomenon with absolutely local contexts. And so speaking in generalities about the world, speaking in collective pronouns is really problematic here. And so that shows the need to really double down on highly local, highly contextualized understandings of public health and disaster. That's one big takeaway for me. It's not that we can't generalize, and I do all the time, but I think we have to leaven those generalizations with as many of the local players and as many of the local factors as we can to try to make sense of why the experience of this pandemic in Nebraska or Florida or South Carolina or South Africa and, and South Korea have been so different. The other thing I think connected with that is that there's a tension here that we've got to really attend to between national stories and other stories. So much of the data that we receive is national because that's how pandemics and disasters are generally managed. But, you know, the category of the nation is an unstable one uh, in time and even across time. And, you know, it's unsatisfactory to try to understand this as, you know, the United Nations of COVID-19. And so we'll understand it by knowing the South Korean case versus the Taiwanese case. There's all sorts of dynamics at the subnational level that cut across. So those are a couple of sort of high level things. The other thing that struck me time and again is that the pace is just so strange. I talked with a disaster researcher named Malka Older, and she's also a novelist. And she's been really good at talking about Corona and time. She came up with this term Corona lag, which is this weird experience that we have where we're we're all in a sort of a virtual space. So those of us who have the privilege to like do this, kind of work where we're maybe talking with colleagues. And so we're we're kind of safe in here in this Zoom box to a certain degree. But we may not know what's happening outside the window and outside the door for each individual. And at the height of the pandemic last spring, that could be very different. So you might have somebody from London and somebody from New York and San Francisco and somebody from rural America all at one call. And there's this strange lag across time that we might think of as a, a kind of a jet lag, but it was a corona lag. I think it was a really interesting way to think about different experiences we're all having in real time. And then in terms of disaster time, this is not an event. It's played out over a long period of time now already, but it's 
it's not climate change either. Things are moving pretty quickly. So it falls into some sort of median time space that I think is often hard for disaster researchers right now tend to fall in one of two camps. They either focus on disasters as events with a real tight time frame, or they focus on disasters as social processes, like I usually do, over long stretches of time. The pandemic falls somewhere in between. And so that forces us to do, I think, some kind of time analytics that maybe we don't always have the best tools uh, to deal with. I think one other thing I would mention is that there's a couple of areas of disaster research which were always treated as a little fringy, maybe. Not that they weren't great research, but they were at the fringe of what people thought is sort of real core disaster research, like disaster sociology that understands emergent communities and disasters, something like that. And one of those is around um, misinformation and conspiracy. And you know, the work of people like Kate Starbird, for example, during this time has just been tremendous to try to show us that misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy thinking are really right at the center of understanding what's going on with this disaster and the other areas of authoritarianism. You know, somehow treating the history of the state, the history of authoritarianism, consequences of authoritarianism and disaster as separate to the American experience. I mean, we might have thought that that wasn't relevant, but it's pretty clear now we should have been thinking about that before March of 2020. So all these insights derive from your episodes and your episodes, if I understand correctly, all have guests. So who are these guests, right? You said that the beginning they were social scientists, but who else have you gotten on and how have you continued to find so many people over a year and what, like two months at this point? Those are good questions. Thank you. Yeah, I did start with social science disaster researchers who I knew were doing, had done really important work that had a bearing on the pandemic and that they should be found by journalists. That was sort of the initial part. And then I also included in sort of the first few months of episodes, a lot of health researchers, public health researchers, people like Esther Chernak, for example, who was my colleague at Drexel University in the School of Public Health. I had Esther on a lot, actually, um, early on. I'd sort of bring her on for like a 20-minute hit to like explain the public health, like what is happening in public health today. And that was really useful there um, at the beginning. I also did a few of those with emergency management researchers like Patrick Roberts and Sam Montano. But did you know these people originally or did you just reach out to them at the beginning of COVID? Right. So these are people who are already in my orbit. And that's a good point to make is, is that early on, I was really already kind of had that network and I reached out to people who were in my network or extended network, people I could reach quickly. You may remember too, in that early period of the pandemic, because we were all trying to make sense of what was going on, you could send a Twitter direct message or an email and get responses from people quite quickly. And there was a sort of a heightened sense. And that's not unusual for disaster. It usually doesn't last for three or four months. Um, but I got responses very quick. So it was actually easy to program shows on very short notice. And I did that at the beginning. After the first three months or so, I started to broaden it out. And there I started to approach people who I hadn't met before. The social justice, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, everything was blowing open in the springtime. And so, like I said, the pandemic had become something else. And then also it, we had entered fire season and hurricane season. So it now is becoming a potential for compound disaster. And then the historical dimensions became more and more interesting as time went on and more relevant, I think. And so, I mean, 
can't remember exactly when I reached out to you guys, but we talked about pandemics in a historical time frame. A lot of people are maybe not used to bringing to bear on a pandemic that's happening in real time. But I got comments about really how great that conversation was. So I've had historians who covered all different times and places, public health history, disease history. And those are very popular episodes, I think, because people not might think, yeah, the 1918 influenza is relevant. But you know, how are older pandemics relevant to this? Well, let's explore that. And that's been interesting too. What are the themes and episodes were more popular among the ones you've had? Popular, and of course, popular is hard to measure in social media. I would say the ones that have been most listened to, as far as I can measure with the stats are available to me. I had Ed Yong, the journalist from The Atlantic on at the end of last year. I was really excited to get Ed. So I have had journalists throughout and I had Laura Garrett. A lot of people tuned in for that one, but I had Ed Yong at the end of the year and he did such amazing reporting last year. And he was willing to come on and talk. And it was such a great fast paced discussion that I was just feeding him. I said, and then you wrote this thing. Why did you write that? And he, he answers in sort of like paragraphs. He's like, well, I talked to, you know, 800 people and this is what they told me. Well, I mean, he, so much research goes into every sentence that he writes. And of course, historians have Ken with journalists who work like that too. So it was, that was an exciting conversation. I think we had a lot of people listen to that. I would say there've been a few episodes that really spun me around a little bit where the conversation was something I knew was going to be in. They're all been interesting. I've learned from every single one of them. But I talked with Kristen Urquiza in the fall of 2020. Her name may be familiar to you. Her father died uh, in Arizona. And Kristen started a project called Marked by COVID. And she wrote an obituary for him, which basically was a call out of the governor of Arizona and President Trump. And she made it overtly political. She had uh, some direct actions and she actually spoke at the Democratic National Convention. And I spoke with her in the fall after the convention. And she read her father's obituary on the program. And she talked about what it was like to cope with that loss. And she talked about building a social movement around that. That was really something. And I've talked with other victim family members. You know, at first I was really reluctant to invite essential workers, healthcare workers, and victim family members, but I've gotten over that now because the conversations have been illuminating and they've been helpful to people. People have responded a lot to those. I think also there's something in there for researchers who might feel like our work often doesn't matter, that we do have a role to play, I think, in making common cause with victims, victim family members, policymakers. We have special skills that we can contribute to the kind of work they're doing. Kristen's a good example of that. So I learned a lot from that conversation. Yeah, maybe that's a good pivot point to ask. You know, you've talked about connecting researchers with the media. Has that been successful? And if so, how has that process worked for you? That's an ongoing project. And again, I don't know how to measure if it's been successful or not. I mean, I guess... One measure of that would be, have we seen more news stories with in-depth reporting about humanities and social science disaster research? And I can't give an answer to that. I haven't made a systematic assessment of that, but I'm seeing it. I do see it. 
And the episodes with journalists often lead to both other journalists reaching out and saying yes, or um, even contacting me in some cases and saying, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to talk. I've had that. Um, and then more requests um, from some of the people who've been on COVID calls from journalists, and that has been um, reported back to me as well. I think it's not even so much about sort of like, can we go back and measure, you know, mentions? Uh, can we measure, you know, whatever, however we would measure something like that? But can we start this sort of process of relationship building so that the next time there's a disaster, we don't all have to relearn all of this? And there need to be working relationships between researchers and the press. I talked with Amanda Ripley on Friday. Uh, she was on with Lori Peak. We were talking about Dennis Maletti, who was a sort of legendary disaster research figure. And Amanda has written some, she does amazing reporting, and she wrote a book called The Unthinkable. And she said this very well. She said, you know, most there isn't a disaster beat. Most journalists are not covering disasters on a regular basis. And she said, we rely a lot on researchers to be open to taking our calls, speaking in ways that we can understand um, and taking our call the next time and the next time. So I think that's one of the ambitions I continue to have for COVID calls is we can be a space for that relationship building and take place. Yeah, so it really seems that you've been building these bridges with the, the journalists but one question I did have is how do other historians react to this? How does our discipline, broadly speaking, react to this? So how often have you been asked to speak about this? I think you, you mentioned that not very often. What kind of feedback are you getting from other historians? And are they seeing this as some kind of new model? Are they kind of looking the other way? I mean, what has been your take? It, again, because we're in so this like weird COVID time, you know, I've been in my little room doing these calls. And so like, I don't, I haven't been to the AHA. I haven't been to any meetings. I haven't been with anywhere. <laughs> so I'm online with this door. And almost no one has, has said no to an invitation. Historians have been universally energetic in coming on and then sharing it in their social networks and then feeding back that they have taught with these calls. And people have told me that they've put these in their syllabi. And then sometimes they'll say, my class is going to watch and I can actually see the statistics jump up a little bit for that particular session. So it's making its way into the classroom. Uh, I've done a, some short essays about it that have made it into publications for history teachers, things like that. You know, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, we operate at a slower pace on something like that. But is it building networks for historians across the subfields? Yeah, I hope so. And I intentionally try to program episodes that do that or try to build a week that might talk about pandemics across many different timescales. And hopefully historians are finding each other's work in that way. And do you know if there's anyone who's tried to maybe adopt and adapt your model to, to something similar, but a bit different? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I have not seen the COVID calls franchise yeah, but I will say that the number of people, so you're, you guys are doing podcasts and there are so many social media projects related to COVID, which may not be like a daily broadcast or even a podcast, but they're archiving projects. I mean, I've talked to so many people who have sort of started up archiving projects. I mean, one example, Ryan Hagen, who's a sociologist in New York, he's 
almost at the beginning of the pandemic. He may have even started before I did. They decided they wanted to do, you know, an oral history project with essential workers and they got it up and they got it going. And it wasn't just a body of interviews, but it was also a body of interviews thinking already ahead about how that will turn into an online accessible open access database and research portal. I see a lot of that kind of activity going on. And those might spin out media projects of one type or another. But the fact that so many people have taken the leap into, I guess, what deans like to call um, digital humanities, what people, what funders and, and like to call digital humanities, the enthusiasm for that is, I think it's finally gotten real because I think people do see the opportunity in front of them right now. And also the danger, the perishability of this data is real. Uh, people's memory of what it was like even one year ago is fading. And so for historians to try to make time to do projects that capture that or capture what their colleagues are thinking, uh, I think that's important. And I am seeing that around. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think Ridley and I are interested in seeing this develop as we've talked about a number of times, is what happens moving forward with academia? Does this work, I think, become more central in what we do? Because I think it's obviously just as important as writing your classic article and monograph at the same time. Well, I hope people will, will believe that because if they saw the amount of background research that has to go into doing this, they might understand. I mean, it's hours every day of background reading to try to put together a one-hour call and then to try to promote it and just try, try to hope that it gets out into the right communities who need to absorb that information. Um, that's real work. I, and I, I guess I should have said this earlier that assistant professors, graduate students, I'm a professor. I have all of the privileges that the academy can bestow, right? I bet a lot of people doing this kind of work are people who are not tenured yet. They're graduate students. They're a contingent faculty. They're in museums and archives. They go into situations where they don't necessarily know the outcome, and they still feel that this work is important enough to spend their time and effort and their reputation on. That's really impressive. When I think, like, how can I be hopeful about the historical profession? That gives me a lot of hope. Now, your chair, department, university, are they all on board? Or are they even aware of what you're doing? What's the relationship there? Yeah. At, when I was at Drexel, I got responses about this within the first week. I think, from the president of the university. And it's because it circulated into the media. And university presidents find out when their faculty hit in the media, they, they find out about it. That's not fair necessarily to people who are doing already like working in their lab or doing more patient work. I mean, it's, but this is the reality of our time. If you can create a product that moves out quickly into the information space and then gets read back, then you might get a note from the president of your university. Once you've done some of them, or a dozen, or 269, <laughs> however many you're going to do, and people start scrolling through and seeing, oh, this isn't just some made-up thing. This is a lot of interviews. Here's people here I've even heard of, maybe. Um, yeah, I do think people outside of the, the narrow confines of the department are paying attention. At least in my case, I've gotten great feedback in that regard. I have to say it's very encouraging and not what I expected to hear. I mean, both the engagements of your previous university and your current university, of that being so much in the discourse, I mean, you receiving positive feedback, I think is, is not obvious at all. So I'm very glad to hear that. Well, there's another reason for that, which is that I have been, uh, I'm happy to talk to historians and I talked to a lot of historians, but this is intentionally also a space 
to work across the social sciences and across the sciences engineering. And I have had poets and I have had sanitation workers so that if you wanted to find a way to actually demonstrate the social applicability to historical thinking, this is a way to actually do it where somebody can sit down for an hour and say, oh, I see what you mean. I see what what you mean when you say academics can work outside of the ivory tower. This is a way to do that. So I guess that leads to a different question, which is about your audience. So who who's this audience? Who are these people who are supposed to listen to either all of this, if there are people who listen to the entire thing, or who are the listeners who kind of pick and choose the episodes they're interested in? And what 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 has your experience been? I mean, I can say that on our side, other than people emailing us or contacting us through social media, we feel that we don't really know who's out there listening. And obviously, there are m- much more people who are supposed to be listening, at least according to the statistics, than the number of people who contact us. So w- what's your take there? Well, first, I have to give a special award to my wife's parents. They, I think they're the only people who've listened to every episode. I have to give a plug because it's my parents who give me a feedback text <laughs> after every one of our episodes. Yeah, I mean, that's special. And I have to call them out, John and Susan Whirling, if they listen to this. It's so nice. I can tell you just by sort of in the social media circles that I run in, that the disaster researcher community broadly defined people are are listening to these in that world, just because I see the episodes being passed around in that way. And actually Periscope, which supposedly was out of business, but still works for some reason, um, you can see who's who's at least watched for a long enough for it to count as a view. So if you spend the time to go through, which I do once in a while and see well, who is watching, you can actually see who's watching based on if they're on Twitter or not. But I mean, these are just, this is such a, that's such a small slice of the world in that regard. Like, so who's watching on YouTube? It's very hard to know. Who's listening on the downloads on Apple Podcasts? I really don't know. And I guess that's a discomfort that maybe people who are like broadcasters, like they just grow up with that kind of discomfort. In our world, like in history, like you have a pretty good sense of who's making use of your work, right? Because it gets reviewed by them, or you hear about it later, or you meet people at a conference, you go to a conference and you give a talk and you see the 18 people in the room and then you chat with half of them after it. So you know who your audience is. This isn't like that at all. And reaching some comfort level with that has is part of the skill, I think. I have to say, I mean, I like I like it when I do an episode and I can see from the numbers that people are watching or listening. But I tell guests sometimes this, and I don't think they trust me when I say this, but I'm like, really, I'm in this for the for the transcripts. I mean, for me, this is the long haul, and we're building a body of of information here. And uh, all the things I said earlier, I'm, I'm glad they hopefully they seem to be working, building those relationships with journalists. But from an archival perspective, if people are not catching this now, but they catch this five years from now, that'll be great. And that's that's a big reason I'm doing this too. So you've talked a bunch about you know who you've had on, but. How do you see the role of humanities, disaster research, social sciences in shaping policy moving forward, right? How do you see that long-term project working out and what do you want to contribute with COVID calls to that? Thanks for that that question. Well, one thing we know doesn't happen is not there's not a linear model between something somebody says on a podcast and a senator hearing it and then introducing a piece of legislation. You'd be surprised. I think some people still have that that kind of idea. Maybe there was a time, I don't 
think there was, but maybe there was a time when sometimes that happened. I think that what I'm seeing here in real time is what I've studied historically is that to the extent that there's going to be significant sense-making after this is over, whenever that is, and significant um, lessons learned and help for victims, it's going to come with some sort of combination between victims who have victim families and survivors who have moral authority and others who can help provide the science or the social science for them to build a case. That's why I mentioned Kristen Urquiza before. I think that's a good example. I mean, she's building a movement out of her experience and she's been reaching out to people to help join her in that. Now, what's that, what shape is that going to take? Is that going to be policy like state or federal policy? I don't know, but it's going to make itself into the policy space in one way or another. That's one thing. The other thing is that, um, again, this sort of strategic effort to engage journalists and work with journalists to try to amplify the things that we spend a lot of time coming to know as experts, that's real work. That's important work. And I can tell you there's a piece of legislation that right now is moving through both the House and the Senate to create a standing disaster investigation board. And I've been called by staff members, both from the Senate and from the House, and I'm not the only one, uh, to talk with them about that piece of legislation. And I, that's not disconnected from the work that I've been doing on COVID calls. So, and again, it's not just me. So there's a lot of people who've been engaged in pushing for that. So occasionally I think it can be legislation. So victims advocacy, direct work with journalists with the hope that maybe it turns into actual pieces of legislation. And then, I, I mean, just doing the work, like continuing to build out the historical archive. I mean, that we often don't think of that work as politically efficacious but we teach it. We don't know where our students are going. A lot of our students are going into engineering or medicine, business. And so continuing just, I think, to be fastidious in the documentation of this time, reflecting on how previous cases in history reflect on this time, that matters too. The history of pandemics isn't just available on Wikipedia. We have to keep building it out. So... I mean, the the last thing I mentioned may seem obvious to people, but continuing to do that kind of work when you can't get to the archives, when your kids are home all day, when you're tired or worried about being sick, that's not so easy. In our profession, to speak for historians and archivists and people who work in museums, they need to give, give each other a pat on the back, socially distanced pat on the back and take a breath and say, good to keep doing that work in this time. And as soon as we can get back in the archives and all work there and then work together, in whatever ways we have, we should keep doing that too. And in this context, how do you see your work and maybe COVID more broadly as a source for useful lessons for to try to avoid similar cases in the future, let's say? So how can we use your work, for example, to try to better prepare or plan for future disasters? That's a really hard question to answer because it's very easy to get fatalistic about this. And, you know, when you talk to people who do climate change research, for example, they can get a little bit grim about that. And, and maybe that's okay. 
that sense that this is not going to be easy because the structural forces in society that are aimed at risk-taking without worrying about the consequences are so deeply seated, so strong. If you want to introduce radical ideas like, hey, maybe people should have health care, or maybe we should have a stockpile of necessary medicines, those are not so commonsensical to everyone. And then we have to have models that somehow take into account a bad actors, like at the level of the executive of the United States of America. <laughs> so there's a lot to be concerned about, and there's a lot to be grim about. At the same time, though, and what I was just pointing to, the idea that we have seen some realization among policymakers that what's happened here, we couldn't do another one of these, that this has been completely unsustainable and shattering at every level of society. And so taking this moment and really arguing as strongly and loudly as we can that we have to have more research in this moment and demanding it really for people at every scale. I think that's a, that's a lesson that can be taken away. The idea that we're going to have findings from this that are going to reduce suffering in future disasters. I haven't given up on that at all. I think the idea that we can come to understand how social media networks, for example, give rise to disinformation campaigns that actually lead to protests that hurt and kill people. I think we can know that. I think we can understand the way that structural inequality has led to people who, African-American or other minorities or people, um, indigenous people or older people, that they've died at disproportionate rates. That is so well documented now. That causality now is so clear. I expect to see action on that. So I'm not completely hopeless about that. There's one other thing I guess I would point to is that we should probably realize that the lessons of history are not just about coming up with a five-point action plan for the future. They're also about developing other kinds of skills, empathy, deeper understanding, thinking by analogy. When I read histories of disasters and pandemics in previous times, a lot of times what strikes me is just understanding how people coped with loss. That's not something you turn into a plan and hand to the senator. That's something you use as a human being to console each other. We need that too. Yeah. So I think that's a really hopeful, positive note to end on. And so I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Scott. Thanks. It's uh, really great to talk with you, Merlin Lee, and congratulations on the success of your podcast. It's, uh, it, I listen to it and love it and keep going. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for the compliment and for, for coming on the show. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot. Thanks. So, you know, Merle, this, I thought, was a very good concluding point to the series we've had, or like the mini series or mini arc we had about the, the meta historical discussion where we thought about how to, quote unquote, make history matter for lack of a better term. And reflecting on this together with Scott, I think, was actually a good way to conclude this mini arc, at least for now. So first of all, Lee, I'll just say that you now approve of mini arcs, which is wonderful to hear since you used to hate on them so much. But on a broader note, I think you're very much right. I think, at least for me, from what I remember, this underlying discussion began actually when we talked to Richard McKay 
about AIDS and HIV and policy research and media outreach and continued through Lucas Engelmann. And really, I think culminated in the two episodes by Sven Eric a couple of weeks ago and here by Scott Knowles about the importance of media and outreach in the short term when your work is relevant and important. But also, I think what Scott made very clear here was how he's thinking very long term about networking at the same time, right? That you need to build these networks to put together, to be old fashioned about it, your Rolodex and how you do this. Right. And maybe if you would allow me to reflect even a bit further and on another meta level issue. So I think if I remember correctly, at least we chose to have Richard McKay on for AIDS, not for anything policy related, but once that came into that discussion or when those themes started coming into our discussion, we started, I guess, looking for other guests or, or being open to other guests discussing this. And that did, I would say at least, influence the path this podcast has moved to, at least over the past, what, like three or four months, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And I think it also brings up an interesting point when Scott was reflecting on his show on COVID calls, many of the themes and the arcs and the thoughts on how to put together these shows and how you think about topics was very similar to our own. Now, I think his was quite accelerated, right? I mean, if you're doing five a week, how you go through that progression is just going to be much faster because you have more people to talk with and more to think about versus ours has been a little bit slower. But, you know, when he talked about local experience during COVID, that was something we really talked about quite a bit ourselves back last April and May and June, for example. Right. And and I think that one thing that might help others is maybe us or maybe together with him or maybe him or maybe someone else could try to put this together in some format of writing maybe or, or guidelines of what to do and what not to do, how these things work, which I remember at least for us at the beginning was was a big unknown. And this could definitely be made easier for the next group of, pod, of future podcasters. Yeah, I think we got a lot of help from our colleague, Glenn McDormand, who runs his own podcast network on how to do the mechanics, right? Buy a mic, here's how you edit, that kind of stuff. But I think there's a lot more work we could do working with Scott, and I'm sure there's others out there in a more, quote unquote, standard academic place where we reflect upon a lot of these issues, what we've learned, and how to go about doing this process and the importance of it for the academy writ large, as I think you and I have come to the conclusion of. Yeah. And I hope that in future conferences and other academic events, we'll see more presence to these types of formats, right? So both podcasts, but also these reflections on podcasts and even the how to do a podcast, for example. And maybe to move on, one question I did have in response to the, the interview we had with Scott was about disasters and specifically when disasters end. And so when Scott spoke about like his decisions about when to finish, it seemed that the disaster, in our case, COVID, would just continue, right? So it would morph into something else. I mean, he said that he wanted to start and have 100 days or so, and, and then George Floyd happened, and then that changed. And as time moved on, COVID has changed. So what's interesting to me is what would actually finish COVID, if at all. And 
at least based on my very short ref- time to reflect so far, I'm not sure it will end. I mean, it would just morph into something else and we'll have to deal. And we as a society or societies or world would have to deal with the aftermath of COVID, which is a thing in itself. Yeah, it's actually goes back to what we talked to Dora Varga about when it came to polio, right? That there was an end date with polio in terms of vaccinations, but there are groups still today and people still today experiencing the effects of getting polio when they were younger, right? So that it depends on the angle and the questions you're asking when disasters or pandemics or diseases end. You know, we might say that their economic effects will end at some point, but their personal human effects are always going to carry through and how that changes how people think will obviously carry through as well. One last thing I thought was really great to hear from Scott was that he's gotten very positive feedback from within academia, both where he was at Drexel and now where he is in terms of high level administrators within the university responding very favorably to him doing this. Yeah, and that was actually encouraging to me as well. I mean, I, I noticed that. And I, again, I, I hope this is a sign of change, a sign of some more positive change of these efforts. And I think that we can both agree that, that Scott has definitely put in a lot of effort in, into COVID calls. I mean, just thinking about what it means to have a, an episode per day for over a year, a long episode per day as well, just like, doing the logistics, showing up and, and doing your best. I mean, that's that's intense. And and hearing that he has received like positive feedback also from within academia and within formal academia, I, I was very positively impressed. Yeah, it goes to something I was talking to some colleagues about, which is I think in an academic setting, we often want change to happen very quickly. And in reality, it's very slow. As we know from our historical actors, But once you're living through that process, you want, understandably, some of these things to be faster and they just aren't. But I do wonder if something like COVID will accelerate this process. So I guess we'll we'll find out in the years to come. So as we wrap up, Lee, I wanted to ask you, you know, the warm weather is coming or probably in Israel, it's already there. One thing I always think about when it comes to kids is how gendered all their clothing is from an early age. So boys' clothing is trucks and, you know, camouflage. And girls' clothing is pink and animals and dresses, which for small children, dresses make absolutely no sense. But what's your feeling on this intense gendering of clothing? Do you do this with your daughter? Well, First of all, I will say that children's clothing is like a mass market. I mean, and obviously there is a market for parents who just want to dress their kids. I mean, I, I feel want to dress their kids like Barbie dolls, right? Or whatever. It's just like you feel that you need to dress your kid in, in some way. So obviously I don't buy into that. All our clothes are secondhand and they're mixed gender. I personally try to avoid dressing my daughter in pink. And every once in a while I would, but I, I, would, I would definitely try not to. One of her shirts that I tend to like has trucks on it. Maybe it's actually interesting to note that some of the words that she already recognizes are various vehicles, right? So motorcycles and trucks and buses. Right? That's like very exciting to her. 
I'll just say that's a standard little kid thing that they know all the vehicles better than you do very quickly. I mean, I guess these vehicles are exciting, right? These like big things that move and yeah. So, so she was she was very excited to sit on a real motorcycle and kind of like be rocked on that motorcycle. So that happened like a week ago or so. But what about your kids? Do you guys switch their clothes? Do you swipe their clothes between them or do they each have their own like sets? So we also have most of our clothes are secondhand because as you said, it's not really worth getting new clothing. I mean, there are exceptions with that socks, underwear, that kind of stuff, but they kind of now are in the stage where they wear whatever they want and they ask for it by name. So my daughter probably under my wife's influence is very into stripes. So she'll wear like striped pants and a striped top, obviously of different colors. So she'll dress kind of hilariously, but she'll wear whatever she wants, whether it be animals or whether it be trucks. So you ask them, what do you want to wear? Or they, do they just go to the closet and pick it and show it to you? And how does it work? Yeah. So we used to pick out clothes for them. And now you just say, go pick out some underwear, pants, and a shirt you want to wear. And that's what they do. And they select whatever they want. Don't they leave the closet the mess afterwards? Well, it's in drawers, but no, they close drawers. You'll see, Lee, when, when your daughter gets a little older, they have a little more capability. But they kind of wear really whatever. My son is into big, poofy, like, princess dresses. That's what he likes to wear on top of his clothes because it has, like, fun colors and tulle, and he likes all that stuff. So he wears a couple of those dresses all the time as his, like, standard over top of his normal clothes. Yeah. Okay. So they can dress in whatever they want. And I'd say they kind of choose a mix of things. The positive of having two at once is they have a drawer that's just long sleeve t-shirts, right? Or a drawer that's short sleeve t-shirts. And it's all a mix of quote unquote boy stuff and quote unquote girl stuff. And they'll pick and choose whatever they want. Have they ever fought over clothes? No, they have particular clothes. I would say that they each like. My son likes Minnie Mouse a lot, so he has Minnie Mouse shirts that he wears a lot of. And my daughter likes more, as I said, striped and random things like that. So they tend to have things that they like, but sometimes argue of who gets what Paw Patrol shirt. Yeah, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol. <laughs> okay, so I guess on, on this note of Paw Patrol, which I think has been mentioned like three or four times on these episodes already, which is unusual, I would say. I mean, infectious historians talking about Paw Patrol. Whatever. Uh, we would like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast and, of course, our webmaster, Vera Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe send Lee some secondhand clothes so he can try them on his daughter. <laughs>